On October 7th, global attention turned to Israel and Palestine as the Hamas group currently ruling over the Gaza Strip launched an armed attack on Israel. As the two states have launched into a conflict, many world leaders and organizations are struggling to respond and express clear stances on the conflict. This brings us to the questions of how we got here and where we may be heading next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballium. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today is our analyst, Amelia. Hi, Amelia. Hello. And focusing on the international aspect today is Juliana. Hi, Juliana. Hi, Trish. All right, so before we dive into more um, nuanced conversation about this topic, I want to just turn to you, Amelia, and maybe go over some background information to help our readers kind of catch up on what's been going on and make sure we have a good slate to, to start things off with. Yeah, so starting off on October 7th, Hamas fighters fired rockets into Israel and stormed southern Israeli cities and towns across the border of the Gaza Strip, killing and injuring hundreds of soldiers and civilians and taking a few people hostage. And then one day after that, Israel, the Israeli cabinet declared war against Hamas, followed by a directive from the defense minister to the Israeli defense forces to carry out a complete siege of Gaza. And the conflict continued for quite some time. Two weeks later, the war has gotten way worse. And Israel, the IDF, has started giving warnings to the Palestinian citizens to evacuate in case of bombings because they don't want to harm many innocent civilians. However, it is important to note that they did bomb a hospital which killed 470 Palestinians and injured hundreds more. This is a very controversial moment in the war because Israel has blamed the PIJ and Hamas for a misfired rocket, while Hamas is taking no credit for it, saying that their rocket would not have killed the hospital. And that led to a really controversial moment in the war, which had many people across the world talking about it. And I think it's really important to notice how this war is becoming sort of a you did this, he did this type of war. Mm -hmm. So I know we've definitely seen that rhetoric a lot in many reports on what's going on. And just in general, it's definitely been a time of extreme confusion, I think, on a lot of people's parts. So I wanted to ask you to follow up on all that. How have the leaders of the prospective states responded publicly to this conflict? Well, Israel has went head on with it, stating completely and fully that they're ready to attack Hamas and protect their country in any way they can. They declared war against them and Hamas is ready to retaliate because they know that they're fighting for what they think is right and Israel's protecting what they think is right. Mm -hmm. I see. And so moving into our, our next bit, I want to have an overview of Hamas. I mean, we've thrown that name around a couple times so far, but I just want to make sure everyone has a clear idea of what we're talking about when we're mentioning those things. And so what is Hamas, just kind of plainly? So Hamas is an Islamist militant movement in one of the Palestinian territories, which has two political parties, but Hamas is the dominant one. It is an Islamic movement, which is very important to know, even though it does not resonate with Islamic ideology. And it was founded by Ahmed Yassin, a Palestinian cleric who became an activist in local branches of the Muslim Brotherhood. And from there on, Hamas has grown into a political movement and also an army. And so what is their government structure like? So Hamas has a lot of a lot of leadership bodies and it doesn't consist of like one person predominantly. It's mainly like a group of people that work together. So 
it's not really like the IDF, which has one person controlling everything as like a president. It's a whole group of people. And it's important to know that they have been in government since 2006 because they didn't have an election since then. Mm-hmm. And so what has been the impact on Palestine having a, like we've mentioned, a terrorist group be a governing body in that territory? Yeah, so the Palestinians, although it could be controversial, it is important to note that they have not voted for a legislature since 2006, nor a president since 2008. However, the Palestinians are in support of Hamas, mainly one third of Palestinians saying they would choose Mohammed Abbas as their next president, while the other two thirds saying that they would go for Hamas and they would continuously vote for them if there were to be a new election. Mm-hmm. That's definitely an interesting statistical analysis of the situation there. And so I just kind of want to get a mental image for everybody listening as to what kind of Palestine and Israel looks like. And so could you just explain briefly like, like the geography of the area in terms of like, and we've mentioned the Gaza Strip, and like the West Bank, and just kind of shed a little bit of light on that. Yeah, so geography of Israel and Palestine is that the majority of the land is controlled by Israel, while Gaza and the West Bank is owned by Palestinians, and Israel should, as stated in their contract, have no part in that area. However, Mm -hmm. one could say that they haven't necessarily kept true to that, but Palestinians don't necessarily, you know, try to encroach on Israeli land and... Yeah, it's it's very controversial how they're like so split up. Mm-hmm, gotcha. I know the state of Palestine is kind of split between mm-hmm. the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and I know Israel kind of runs in between that sort of stuff. Yeah, like with the checkpoints mm-hmm. and yeah, there's a lot of geopolitics know. when we're when yeah. looking at this. And so now I want to ask you about: Has there been any international support towards Hamas, and have they received funding? So Hamas does not receive funding from the United States and the European Union because it is considered a terrorist group. So most of their funding comes from private donors of the Persian Gulf or Palestinians that want to help. And some Islamic charities also channel money to Hamas in order to support them because it aligns with their beliefs. And also, if I could interject really quick, Iran reportedly supplies 100 million USD in financial and military support annually for Hamas. And Hamas officials have previously praised Iran for sending, quote, cash, equipment, and military expertise, end quote, and long-range rockets to strike Israel. Also, Qatar funds Hamas with an estimated 120 million USD per year, but in the past they have contributed way more to Hamas, and it claims to support the Gaza government, not the terrorist organization Hamas. Turkey, Malaysia, Algeria, Kuwait also provide financial, military, diplomatic, and political support to Hamas. Okay, so now that we've kind of got a overview of the situation and some more background on the parties at play here, I want to turn to you, Juliana, and ask about some of the international law implications um, associated with this war. Have there been any violations of the, quote, rules of war, unquote, under international law? Yeah, so... The term laws of war is really known as international humanitarian law, especially in terms of diplomacy. And this consists of the four 1949 Geneva Conventions and their two additional protocols of 1977, the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1970, as well as certain weapons conventions that have happened in between then and now. So the Geneva Conventions, all four of them, 
are specifically for victims of war, protecting soldiers on land, at sea, the treatment of prisoners of war, and protections of civilians in occupied territories amidst war. Specifically, Article 14 and Article 18 are the ones that are being brought up the most right now, especially in Western media. Specifically, Article 14 states that hospital and safety zones must, in fact, be established for groups such as the injured, sick, and pregnant women. And then Article 18 states civilian hospitals and their staff must be protected. And after the initial Geneva Conventions, they adopted more protocols that outlined more protections for people. This would include the Hague Conventions, which outlines the conduct of warfare. Article 27 of the regulation states that in sieges and bombardments, all necessary steps must be taken to spare as far as possible buildings dedicated to hospitals and places where the sick and wounded are collected. Also, the Rome Statute is a regulatory rule outlined by the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which isn't recognized by Israel, but it is recognized by the state of Palestine. So this means that the ICC could investigate and prosecute any responsible parties for violating the Rome Statute in Palestine and only on Palestinian territories. The state of Palestine is also a state party of the Rome Statute, which means that Hamas leaders and personnel can be held accountable for committing acts of genocide, crimes against humanity, or war crimes on, for example, the Israeli territory or in Gaza. Israel, like the United States, is not a state party of the Rome Statute, but the ICC prosecutor will scrutinize its military actions in Gaza, the territory of the state party, and the Rome Statute outlines the parameters of which constitutes war crimes genocide, which Israel is accused of being in violation of by many people. Mm -hmm. So we can definitely see through this international law that there's a lot of gray areas in terms of who is bound by what and things of that nature. Um, You can definitely see how that might get very complicated when you're trying to, when people are trying to point fingers or, you know, maybe assign blame in this conflict. So you mentioned at the end how Israel is not a party to some of these statutes and conventions. So how would Israel need to respond to comply with these laws? In order to remain in the good graces and remain legal in international law, Israel cannot starve out the civilian population of the government that they are attacking or they have declared war on. They can only target militant units and military infrastructure of Hamas. In the international law, it says immutable legal principles of humanity, distinction, proportionality, and military necessity. And then they also must allow for repatriation of displaced civilians of the areas that they had. Thousands of Palestinian people have been displaced since the beginning of this conflict, so they must be able to return after the conflict. Mm-hmm. And I know this is a bit of a complicated question. Um, obviously, we don't understand all the nuances of international law, but could one say that Israel has committed violations themselves? It has been said and it has been reported that Israel has violated international law by cutting off water, electricity, and food to civilians living in Gazan territory. By effectively cutting off access to food, water of civilians in Gaza, this will lead to starvation, which is a banned form of warfare according to customary and international humanitarian law because it's inhumane and Israel has not ratified the first and second protocols of the conventions which creates some questions about whether they really have to adhere to the protections of civilians' property and the environment during war. 
but the international humanitarian law also acknowledges the principles proportionality which states that an attack is in violation if the damage to civilian life is greater than any military advantage that is gained and many believe that this war and consistent terror on innocent civilians have exposed the ineffectiveness of international law that is up to debate by many people many journalists have said that it is due to western powers having geopolitical dominance especially in terms of the un creating nato and the icc but it's really up to debate mm-hmm. and so i know we mentioned quite a bit the you know adherence to international law and so on so since Hamas is not a recognized state, do they need to act in accordance with international law? Because there is some distinction between Hamas and Palestine. Yes, Hamas is not Palestine. Uh, Hamas is a non-state actor, so the objectivity of their legal obligations to international law is a little undefined, but Palestine has ratified all three protocols. So as a state party, it is undeniably bound to their terms. Hamas, particularly as a de facto governing authority in Palestine, namely over Gaza, with control over its own militant forces, is obligated as a part of the state of Palestine to comply with the Geneva Conventions and its three additional protocols. And so will there be like an international reprimand for Israel and Hamas? Israel has stated that it will operate within the parameters of international law, but people say that Israel hasn't, so that's up to for debate in many political circles. And Israel and the state of Palestine, which is recognized by most countries comprising of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, are ratified parties of the four Geneva Conventions of 1949, but only certain parts. So there's a lot of nuance and a, little, a lot of tricky aspects to how international law is going to apply to a situation as this. Mm-hmm. Now, there definitely seems to be a lot of gray area in that sense, and it will come down to, like you were saying, very specifically nuanced um, debate. But thank you for that outlook on it, because it's definitely part of these, you know, wars and conflicts plaguing the world that can typically be skipped over in um, typical conversation about it. So I'm glad that you're able to shed some light on that for us. And so turning back to you, Amelia, I kind of wanted to get, now that we've talked about the politics of the region and kind of an overview of some of the, the group actors, could you give us an idea of the dynamics of Israel and Palestine in general um, in both recent years and in history? So starting with their dynamic, it's been rocky for quite some time now, I'd say since 1948 when there was the Arab-Israel war. And ever since then, it was back and forth wars between both Palestine and Israel even before Hamas. And they've never had quote-unquote a good relationship with one another so it's always just been very rocky between them and nothing's ever been like clear and concise mm-hmm. and so could you walk us through a little bit of history of the region just for some to contextualize the um, conflict we're seeing today yeah of course so it really all starts in 1915 or 1916 around that time when there were a few letters sent between Mecca's emir and the British High Commi- Commissioner in Egypt, which outlined a promise of independent, of an independent Arab state for Palestinians to have as their own land. And then in 1916, there was a secretly negotiated agreement between Britain and France that planned to carve up the Middle East into spheres of influence, meaning Palestine would be a home for Christians, Jewish people and Muslims all alike, Mm -hmm. and that Jerusalem would be 
and international land. Like everyone could go there. Mm-hmm. But in 1917, Lord Arthur Balfour, which was Britain's foreign secretary at the time, expressed to his government that he wanted to give Palestinian lands to Jewish people. And it's very important to notice that in his declaration, it was said, quote, it should be clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, end quote. I think that's really important to point out specifically now because seeing what is going on between the two you know, countries, it really shows how the Palestinians are fighting for their land, but so are the people that are living in Israel. And then moving on to 1947, there was a resolution, Resolution 181, which brought up the idea of a of two independent states, one being Arab, one being Jewish. And then Jerusalem was to be under a special international administration. However, the Arab side did reject it, arguing that it was unfavorable to their majority population. Going back to the geography, their land was not going to be split evenly, giving Israel more land than Palestine, which the Arab population did not agree with. And then in 1948, in May, Israel declared independence officially, which led to a big war, arguably the first war that they had, because all the Arab countries around Israel attacked at once. However, it did end with Israel gaining control of an even larger portion of territory not including the areas of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. An estimated 700,000 Palestinians left the land because it was a catastrophe, like they said. Mm -hmm. And so I know that I'm sure many of our listeners can remember that there have been instances in recent history of conflict between Palestine and Israel. Very um, notably, in 2014, there was a Gaza war. Could you shed some light on that? Yeah, of course. So the 2014 Gaza War, which was also known as Operation Protective Edge, was a military operation launched by Israel on the 8th of July 2014 in the Gaza Strip, which was owned by Palestine at the time. And the war went on for many months and there were really destructive battles, which basically tore Gaza to shreds at the time. And it ended with a ceasefire. However, the Palestinians did have a lot more casualties at around 2,250, while the Israeli side, only 74 people were killed, including six civilians, unlike the Palestinian side, which the majority of their casualties were civilians. And so was Hamas in power at this time during this war? Yes, they were in power. Okay, and so as the two states with very strong ethnic identities, as we've gathered through our conversation, how has ideology, how has ideology played a role in this conflict. So as Juliana said earlier, Hamas is not Palestine. And I think it's also very important to note that Hamas is not Islam. Mm -hmm. They're very different and they don't represent the same ideals. Even though they are an Islamic movement, it is not the same whatsoever. And Israel has an ideology named Zionism, which by definition came about in Eastern Europe. And it's a colonial movement that supports the establishment by any means necessary of a national state for Jews in historic Palestine. It calls for Palestine to be eradicated in a way in order to create um, a homeland for Jewish people specifically. But one could say that is questionable considering 
where would the Palestinians go mm-hmm. if Israel completely controlled the state? And the Zionists early objective was to claim as much of historic Palestine as possible. They wanted to drive out all of Palestine, like Palestinians, and they actively encouraged the mass migration of European Jews to Palestine during the first half of the 20th century, specifically after World War II. And they really just wanted to bring in more Israelis for their land while driving out Palestinians, Mm -hmm. which some do say is unfair because as I said in the history, technically Palestine was, you know, actively owning the land before Israel, before the British gave land to them. But on the same, Palestine did say no to the resolution 181 of a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. So the blame really goes back and forth. Yeah, so we can definitely see how the two-state system in general has been kind of a, a cataclyst for a lot of the issues we've been seeing in the region um, and how the different ethnic populations and ideologies definitely play a major role in that. So thank you for, for shedding light on that for us. Of course. And so turning back to you, Juliana, I want to talk a little bit more to kind of wrap up our main discussion on this about some of the international responses um, to the conflict. So what have been the responses around the world? So generally it can be split up into the East and the West. The West has generally supported Israel. Uh, Joe Biden has voiced America will support Israel in this war. Biden has tried to not alienate the Palestinian people in his public statements about the war, but his supporting of Israel can be said otherwise. And then there has been a report in rising conflicts and threats in Muslim and Jewish communities in the United States. A six-year-old boy was murdered in his home in Illinois for being a Pakistani Muslim by his landlord that was motivated by a severe hatred for Muslims and his intense feelings about the fighting in Israel. The FBI has reported an increase in numbers of threats in Muslim and Jewish communities. The FBI has asked local law enforcement to use extreme vigilance and asked faith leaders to report any suspicious threats or activities. Justin Trudeau has stated that Canada supports Israel's right to defend itself, but emphasized the importance of humanitarian law and how it must be upheld, stating that even wars have rules. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak declared the British support for Israel and France supports Israel too, but have reported 200 anti-Semitic acts since the beginning of the conflict, mostly verbal threats and vandalism, and over 100 people have been arrested for acts that are defined as being glorifying of terrorism. And in Asia, Japan wants to maximize humanitarian aid provided to the Gaza residents. Japan, who is this year's chair of G7 Advanced Economies, plans to extend 10 million USD in emergency humanitarian aid to Gaza residents. Prime Minister Kishida wants to work with Middle Eastern powers, namely Saudi Arabia, to ease tensions and improve humanitarian aid. China is pro-Palestinian because of its similarities to Maoism. China has condemned Israel airstrikes and attacks in Gaza. In a recent meeting of the Belt and Road Forum, Russia and China have voiced their opinions on the conflict in Gaza, blaming the United States. South Asia has been divided on who to support. India has been really vocal about their support for Israel. And Afghanistan and 
Bangladesh strongly condemn what's going on in the conflict. Bangladesh strongly condemned the ongoing armed conflict and it warned Israel that living under Israel occupation and forced settlements in Palestinian territory will not pave the way for peace. Also reiterated that the two-state resolution is viable solution and the optimal solution for this conflict. Okay, so now that we have a very holistic view of what's been going on domestically as well as internationally and kind of all of the viewpoints and things to consider, I want to just ask you to, to summarize your final thoughts um, briefly. And so turning to you, Amelia, first, do you think there's any chance of a ceasefire occurring in the near future and how might this continue to develop? Um, I don't think that there would be a ceasefire. Comparing this war to the one in 2014, the casualties are much more even, and I think the only reason the 2014 war really ended was because the Palestinians had lost almost 2,000 more casualties, and I, I don't think it could end in a ceasefire because both sides have lost too much, and I think both are very dedicated to their causes, which will keep the war ongoing. So I'm sure we'll definitely continue to see this develop and be a, a pressing matter in the news as in the near future definitely. and probably much longer definitely. as well. Yeah. And so to you, Juliana, um, how have we seen Israelis and Palestinians around the world respond? There have been many protests since the beginning of this conflict. There have been thousands of pro-Palestinian protests. Thousands of de demonstrators have begun to protest Israel's relentless assault in Gaza, calling for an end to the illegal occupation on Palestinian land, often carrying signs saying free Palestine and declaring Israel as an apartheid state. And there have been major scandals, too, in large American institutions like Harvard, where students are being banned from applying for jobs in certain major corporations because of them voicing their support for Palestine. There have also been pro-Israeli protests in major Jewish communities. There have been marches in support for Israel's right to defend itself. And there have been clashes of the two in New York City's Washington Square Park. Protesters from both sides met in a relatively peaceful protest. There was no active violence, but many people are voicing their support for whichever side they want. And it's really engaging the youth of the world. Mm -hmm. So this has been a really great discussion. Um, thank you both so much for coming on and helping us tackle this really important topic. Thank you. Thank you. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Jacqueline Garcia. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey, Trish. Thank you for having me. Of course. And so what headlines do you have for us this week? Okay, so first, the UN Security Council approved sending foreign forces to Haiti, Sudan's war past six months, with much of the world consumed by other conflicts. And lastly, Canadian Prime Minister says India's actions making life hard for millions of people. All right, so it sounds like we have lots of interesting stories to cover today. Let's start with the foreign forces in Haiti. All right, so due to endless gun violence and political paralysis, the United Nations Security Council decided to send armed multinational forces to Haiti. This decision was after repeated calls for assistance by Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry. The armed forces are to be under Kenya's control, with Haiti's neighboring countries also offering support for 12 months. Right, definitely something we'll keep an eye on as the um, time continues. And so, what's going on with the war in Sudan? So, it is about to be seven months since the war between Sudan's military and paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, began. So far, the United Nations reports that about 9,000 people have been killed, with 5.6 million forced to leave their homes. Various ethnic groups have been targeted 
Hospitals are under imminent threat, and many areas are seeing many people who arrived after escaping. Governors of these areas need humanitarian aid as well to assist everyone. That's definitely a crisis we'll be paying attention to going forward. And last story? So, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that India's crackdown on Canadian diplomats is affecting millions of people who have Indian descent, international students, and diplomats. This occurred after a, a month after Trudeau suggested Indian se- agents were involved in the murder of a Sikh separatist leader in Canada. Following this, India threatened to revoke the status of 41 diplomats, which Canada had to withdraw from India. Thank you so much for coming on, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me. That is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Bobby Kyle, associate producers Kasha Kostrava and Juliana Mori, technical producers Ashley Skladani, Amelia Vensochinsky, and of course your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thanks, y'all.